darkness, suffering, prison of the mind, his soul in chains, his body in solitary confinement, nothing but darkness. All life is suffering, Reese remembered. Hello, and welcome to Bestseller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or regift it. I'm Brian. And I'm Barbara. Today we're reviewing Only the Dead by Jack Carr, number one on the June 4th, 2023 list. Before we get to our new number one, what else is happening on the list this week? Dropping off the list after two weeks is Secret Book of Flora Lee by Patty Callahan Henry. And dropping off after 17 weeks is Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. But I have a feeling this May 2022 book will be back because it's been hovering off and on the bottom of the list for months already. Also dropping off after three weeks, Things I Wish I Told My Mother by Susan Patterson and Susan DeLalo. Remember, that's the one where James Patterson's name is also on the cover because he served his wife and her co-author coffee and sandwiches as they wrote, or so he says. Maybe that was based on things his mother told him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I like that. Uh, We also have some new books on the list this week. Yellowface, R.F. Quang's novel about what happens when a young white author tries to pass herself off as Asian American because she thinks it'll jumpstart her career. That's at number five, and I'm really looking forward to reading that. Also on the list this week, The True Love Experiment by Christina Lauren, which is a combined pen name for writing team Christina Hobbs and Lauren Billings. And we know something about writing as a team. Indeed we do. And finally, the last new one is Fractal Noise, the new space adventure by Christopher Paolini, another one that I really want to get to. But let's talk about our new number one. What do we know about the author? The author is Jack Carr. He's 48 years old, born in New Brunswick, Canada, but grew up in Northern California. There are a lot of soldiers in his family background, including a grandfather who was killed in Mm. World War II. He's a former Navy SEAL who lives with his wife and three children in Park City, Utah. Jack Carr joined the U.S. Navy in 1996 and retired in 2016 after 20 years. He deployed to the Persian Gulf in 2001, led sniper teams in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then served as platoon commander conducting counterinsurgency operations in the Philippines. He got into fiction writing right after retiring from the Navy, starting with his first book, The Terminalist, in 2018, which introduced James Reese, a Navy SEAL turned CIA agent who's turned into... I don't know, some sort of roving assassin at this point. Six books already in the series. He's releasing one per year like clockwork. The first novel was made into an eight-episode Amazon Prime series last year with Chris Pratt, one of the Chris's, in the lead role, and Gene Triplehorn as Secretary of Defense. The reaction to the show is, is somewhat divided. The Rotten Tomatoes audience score is 95% very high, but the approval from critics is only 39%. We've seen it. What did you think? Well, I guess I'm somewhere in between Hmm. 39 and 95%. I thought it was good enough as a series, but I didn't ever get really pulled in all the way. I mean, let's face it, he's no Bosch. Yeah, okay. But 
we did get through the first season, which says something for it. Yeah. We watched all the episodes. I, I thought Chris Pratt was great and Gene Triplehorn, and, and it was good. But you're right. It's no Bosch. But <laughs> will there ever be another Bosch? <laughs> so he also hosts, Jack Carr, the podcast Danger Close, uh, in which he interviews service members, CIA agents, authors, actors, survivalists, Second Amendment folks, sometimes for three or four hours at a time. I now, I'm not saying all the episodes are that long, but recently they have been. That's a big chunk of time. Yeah, I think they, they really get into it. And he's a very big reader, mm-hmm. even maintaining a book club with monthly reading lists on his website. His mother was a librarian, which apparently helped kindle his love of books. And there's, if you'll notice, there's a lot of references to books throughout this story. I noticed that too, and I always appreciate that. So uh, I saw an internet piece on him where he listed his favorite authors of all time which include David Morrell, who originated the Rambo character, Stephen Hunter, who I wasn't familiar with, who writes sniper novels about a character called Bob the Nailer Swagger. Mm. Yeah. And also on his list of top five authors is Ayn Rand, the famous libertarian uber-capitalist author of Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, and so on. So uh, that can be revealing when you're trying to sort of figure this author out. Well, let's talk about the book. It's published by Emily Bestler Books, and the author is represented by Alexandra Machinist at CAA. (laughs) Okay, that's a cool name for a literary agent who sells military thrillers. Although I hope it's actually pronounced Machinist and not like Machinist, because Machinist is cool. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I, <clears throat> I apologize if well, I got it wrong. It looks cool. So the hardcover is 522 pages, not including the four-page author's note, which is interesting. 27-page glossary, mm. a little bit unnecessary. And the 10-page acknowledgments. 10 pages. Yeah, I think I just won an Oscar, and I'm going to thank everyone who's ever touched my career going back to my fifth-grade play director. <laughs> the it's op- a long acknowledgment section. Yeah, truly the glossary. I didn't need to refer to it a single time. I listened to it on the audiobook, and I didn't know there was a glossary, and I'm blissfully unaware of the 10 pages of acknowledgement. So the the glossary was not in the audio? It was not read. Okay, okay. interesting. So, and now I might need to go back and look at it again with the glossary in mind. So how long is the audio? The audio recording is 15 hours and 17 minutes, and it's read by Ray Porter. Well, let's talk about the gender of the readership. So we're talking about a former Navy SEAL writing espionage. What would you guess? I would imagine that some men are reading this, unlike some some of our other (laughs) books. No, there's a lot of men reading it. This is 20% female readership. That means 80% men. Yes. All right. So what we've been learning is that while men don't really read so-called women's fiction, women do read so-called men's fiction. Right. So even in this case, 20% of the readers, one out of five, is female. Well, well, let's talk about the story of the book. It starts with Reese in solitary confinement at ADX Florence, a federal supermax prison near Florence, Colorado. Not just in solitary, Mm. they're keeping him in complete darkness, 24-7, only one meal a day, no clothes, and the temperature in the cell deliberately is cold. Oh boy, they're torturing him. Yeah. We learned that the president of the United States has just been assassinated and they suspect that Reese, while not the shooter, organized the hit. This this opening confused me enough because these are major events, the assassination of the president, that I went back to the previous novel in the series, which is called In the Blood. And there it is in the last chapter, the presidential assassination and Reese's arrest. The arrest happens right when Reese is about to propose to his girlfriend, journalist Katie Burnack. Which makes for a memorable proposal. But not the one he planned. Was he down on one knee? Didn't get that far. 
awful timing by the feds. And no conjugal visits at Supermax. <laughs> so in, in addition to being kept cold. <laughs> He's on ice. Yeah. So we're totally left hanging at the end of novel number five. We have to wait a year for the updates in this one, which reminded me of what's been happening in television. The whole idea of resolution at the end of an episode or even a season. Marvel Universe movies. Right. There's, there seems to be no point anymore where everything gets resolved. Each episode propels you into the next episode. Each season leaves something hanging, propelling you into the next season. Each Chapter propels you into the next chapter. <laughs> well, we're used to that. <laughs> so Jack Carr applies that trick to his novel series. Why not? Right. Maybe it's worth a try. He total cliffhanger at the end of novel number five. But I have to say, it kind of left me on the edge for number six, Only the Dead. I kept wondering, is he going to do the same thing here? Leave us hanging. What happens next in the story? Well, he does get out of prison after three months. Harsh. And we learned that the Russians set him up for this false arrest. Or possibly he was set up by this insidious group called The Collective. The Collective. Right, sort of like, remember like Spectre in the James Bond movies, a group of folks working behind the scenes determining world events, more powerful than actual sovereigns or corporate CEOs. They're from all over the world, US, Russia, China. The only thing they have in common is they're all rich and powerful and really want to rule the world. World domination through economic control. This is who Reese goes up against in Only the Dead. This is the group that wants to take him out. Before his death, James Reese's father, Thomas, had become obsessed with the idea that some of the American POWs in Vietnam were transported to Russia for interrogation and possible recruitment. And by the way, I looked this up and this is a real thing that a real suspicion. The author's not making this up. So Thomas, the father of James Reese, was compiling evidence that these POWs were deliberately left to rot there by craven American authorities who didn't want to confront the Soviets directly. And the collective is involved in this how? Well, the collective was originally formed because they didn't trust politicians to avoid a planet-destroying World War III. So they took it upon themselves to amass enough sway that they could tamp down conflict before it got out of hand, as in this potential U.S.-Soviet conflict about Vietnam POWs. All right. Right. So now the collective wants to take down James Reese before he gets a hold of the file his father was compiling, which has the potential to bring the whole collective conspiracy into the light. And we're not giving away any spoilers here because this is all revealed early in the book. Yeah, we also learn that the collective is not so high-minded anymore as it once was. Yeah, they've gone bad. Indeed. Now they're just really into money and power and the inherent joy of ruling the world. Yeah. <laughs> they, along with the top brass in Russia, <clears throat> it's sometimes difficult to keep track of who's in the collective and who's just another maniacal Russian general, yeah. have come up with a scheme worthy of any James Bond villain. And I want to say, again, this is not a spoiler. This is revealed very early in the book, and that scheme is... They want to blow up a tactical nuclear weapon just off the shore of Israel and blame it on Iran. <laughs> um, because? Because the Russians think that this will draw the U.S. into a war in the Middle East, taking all our focus and resources away from Ukraine, thus allowing the Russians to complete their conquest. Either utter genius or total idiocy. They think genius. 
So, does Reese prevent the Russians from nuking Tel Aviv? Does he get a hold of his father's file and use it to expose the collective? And most important, does he have time between killing all the bad guys to finish proposing to Katie, or does he leave her... And us... ...hanging until the next installment once again? You have to read Only the Dead to find out. As we did. Okay, so let's talk about what we thought of the book, starting with our first category of review, Grip and Grab. Did it pull you in? This was, Grip and Grab was not that strong for me. I was determined to finish. Um, I made steady progress. Towards the end, there started, started to be sort of a build towards the um, the crescendo of the finale, and that mm-hmm. that was rather gripping. And so it um, it improved for me, but early on, I was not very pulled in. I was I was pulled in. I only gave it a two. Uh, it looks like you gave it a two as I well for Grip and Grab. I, I like this kind of setup. I like this kind of story. It reminds me of a James Bond thriller. You know, the whole idea of trying to save the world because bad guys are going to blow up. That's inherently compelling. I do feel like it was, you know, deflected by his writing, actually. He has too much filler. You know, I'll give an example. There's an entire chapter on how the futures market works. Yes. We don't need that, you know, and that's not just, that's one example. The story could be stripped down to maybe less than 300 pages and really cook. And this is a 500-page some novel, correct? Yes. It, so I, mean, I totally agree with that. There, There's just a lot of sort of exposition. There's a lot of explanation. There's mm. a lot of dialogue that is sort of like trying to illustrate the learning process and it's it's maybe it's interesting to some but it's unnecessary in this story there's also at times for me a problem with implausibility Mm. i'll give you an example he's uh the central idea of the plot is they're going to blow up a nuclear weapon the russians that has quote iranian plutonium in it so that the americans in the world blames iran and the united states rushes into war with iran well I don't know what Iranian plutonium is, and he doesn't explain it, and I looked it up, and I'm not sure there is such a thing. <laughs> now, when you're watching an actual James Bond movie or a Mission Impossible or whatever, there's always implausibilities, but it's moving so fast, you don't notice it until half an hour after the movie, and then you're like in the car, and you say, that couldn't possibly happen, and you're... <laughs> Your passenger in the car says, well, who cares? It was fun. <laughs> but in a novel, you have more time to think about it. And I got I got stuck on some of the implausibilities. So uh, I gave the grip and grab a two. I uh, also gave it a Promising two. but deflected by a couple of things. Yeah. Let's talk about writing style under he got flair. So, Does he have flair? Well, sometimes. There were a couple of quotes that I liked. And one, and again, I read or I read the book through the audio Mm -hmm. version. So it was harder to come up with the quotes when I went back. I still don't know what to call it when you listen to a book. (laughs) Does that mean you read it or not? I don't know. I absorbed it. (laughs) Somebody let us know. So there was was one quote that I thought was really rather artistic. And it was about Martha as she was parting the stale air in the smoke-filled room as she was looking for her husband. Oh, that's good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was quite an image. I can still see it. Um, and there was I had an- one marked uh, that I liked. Okay. He said, this is after Reese gets out of three months of solitary in the dark. And uh, somebody says, you'd fit right in tailgating at a 90s grunge band concert in Seattle. <laughs> 
nice. So he's capable. He can yeah. write the nice turn of phrase. So there was one quote that I liked that could describe your study um, in parts of our house. It was, books not only filled every shelf, but were stacked on coffee tables, end tables, the dining room table, seemingly everywhere there was space. Reading glasses were strategically located on top of certain stacks. Even the kitchen had not escaped the library's advance. <laughs> Well, the thing that makes it frustrating for me is when you know a writer can do it, and then you read the book, and it's like one gem every few chapters and lots of problems. He uses a lot of cliches. Yeah. I'll just give some examples. You will get all the sleep you need when you are dead. Are you threatening me with a good time? (laughs) Better to be judged by 12 than carried by six, Reese thought. These are these are cliches, and they really should be either cut or the other thing you can do with a cliche is just modify it a little bit, and then it becomes interesting. Right. Uh, he's also got the strange – I'm going to ask you about this. He uses brand names as shorthand for descriptions. It's just a little weird to me. Here's an example. Reese was back in his normal attire with Solomon shoes, origin jeans, a dark green triple-aught design sweater, brown cool jacket, K-U-H-L, gaiters, sunglasses, and a Hoyt ball cap. Okay, like, is that cool now? Like, to just have a string of brand names by way of description? Well, what's so funny is the first thing that I think of when you say that is maybe he's got an, an agreement with them. Like, maybe maybe he's getting some brand, recog- you know, because he's stating the brand, he's getting some kickback or whatever. But okay. what else we is don't... funny is when I listened to the book, I didn't recognize any of those brands. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, that's the point. It makes you want to look them up and there, there's your there's your product tie-in. Huh. I, I'm not saying that it's a product tie-in that he's paid for. We don't know. But to me, it's a little distracting, a little bit much. And other authors are doing it too. That's why I was asking you if it bothers you as a reader or a listener. He's got this strange proclivity to describe weapons in excruciating brand name, model stock number detail. And some of it I can barely read. I don't know how it came off in the audio. So here's an example. He attached it in front of the Mark IV LRT 3.5-10x40 M3 Leopold scope. Okay, what is that? (laughs) I guess that's the stock number so you can go to your computer and look it up and buy the scope. Well, I can tell you in the audiobook, the way it was handled was very, because you had already said that to me when I was listening to yeah. it, and I was sort of aware of the issue. And the, the audio recording handled it very well, very easily. They didn't say it the way you just did, like, oh my gosh, there's all these words I don't recognize. But it was very, um, very matter of fact and stated, and then you kind of have an image of some kind of weapon. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying this is bad, but it was a, like a real feature of his prose. And, and But there is one thing that I would strongly suggest that he stop doing, and it's not just him. I've seen this with other writers. Do not use the word boast when you're describing buildings and vehicles or the word sport when you're describing someone's attire. So here's the quote. The sprawling 191,000-foot residence boasts a host of amenities. Or another one talking about a yacht called Open Passages. Open Passages sported a dark green hull. As soon as you say boast about a building, I think I'm watching, you know, one of the the home improvement home and garden show. Yeah. <laughs> don't use boast for buildings and don't use sport for buildings or attire unless you're writing advertising copy. That is That's hilarious. a general note to many of the writers we've been looking at. See, that didn't bother me at this, all. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to compliment him though for sure for his fighting sequences which in my mind are the strength of the book we're going to play an example right now 
In this scene, he's actually fighting a bunch of Russian bad guys in a spa or sauna right in Manhattan that the Russians use as kind of a headquarters. So let's give it a listen. It was two on one. The floor was slick with blood, and the men Reese faced had each taken hits. Both were unsteady on their feet. One held a razor. Was your plan to kill me? Reese asked. That is still our plan. The lead man charged. From eight feet away, he covered the distance quickly. Reese timed the charge and pivoted to his left, swinging out with the trapo, which caught the Russian in the side of the head. As his attacker tried to switch directions, his feet slipped on the blood-covered tile floor. Gravity caught hold and pulled him to earth. His head cracking on the hard tile floor sounded like a gunshot in the confined space. The last man saw his friend go down and tried to stop, but it was too late. Reese's towel-covered stone caught him in the teeth and then circled back and hit him in the back of the head, knocking him unconscious. Reese bent at the knees and finished them with four brutal hits to their skulls with the basalt stone. Reese straightened his back and stood up straight, checking his body for wounds. All the blood was Russian. So that's, I think that's good writing. I, all the fight mm -hmm. sequences I could follow really well. And I, I did notice in the acknowledgments, and it, it does pay to read the acknowledgments sometimes, even when there's 10 pages of them, that he thanks somebody named Dylan Murphy for once again going above and beyond and developing the fight sequences in these pages. If readers could only see the fight choreography videos. So he's putting the work in to get the fights right. He's got somebody helping him and building videos. So that's impressive to me. I ended up giving his flair a two. What did you give it? I gave flair a two. Let's turn to the next category, which is called beam me up. This is world building. What did you think of the world of James Reese? Two things about this that struck me. The first one was sort of attention to detail. It would take me out of the narrative trance to have already formed an image that the action was taking place, for instance, in the hot summer sun, and suddenly someone's air or someone's breath is seen in the frosty air. And I'm like, wait a minute, I thought it was July. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to go back and rethink, like if, he, if some little indicator of what season we were in would have helped me not make that mistake in the, in the building of the world. Mm. Um, there was another scene where there was a bank of urinals and I had... <laughs> pictured it either with or without a partition and it turns out that in the action and i can't even remember now the urinal which... bank where you go to make a deposit <laughs> sorry <laughs> i just had I'd never heard that phrase before a bank of urinals is that what you think men's restrooms are i don't think we ever call it a bank sorry. not trying to be funny here you can't help yourself. <laughs> so he goes into... No. So there's like a, a whole... A line. I, that's, a line. I, okay. A, a, I, a row. A row. <laughs> a set, if you will. And in there were partitions between the urinals, and I didn't picture that, or there were not, and I pictured that there were. And okay. it turned out in the action that what I was picturing couldn't work because of the inclusion or not inclusion of the partitions. And so just a tiny little bit of attention to the detail okay, I get you. would help me not get, and those are just two examples. But the other thing mm -hmm. that bothered me about this world is that it just didn't seem very authentic to me. 
like you would you're driving towards something and you get there and then they talk about food or they like they talk about they they have a whole discussion about ancient history and it just doesn't it doesn't work it's not authentic it's disappointing because he he makes a point in the beginning uh there's sort of a i don't know a preface or foreword where he's talking about that he is a, he was a navy seal and he's writing from that authentic place of, of lived experience but you don't get as much insider scoop as you want it's probably not fair to compare him to jean le carré the best in the ever but when you read a book by lakara you feel like you're learning about the inside of these institutions these espionage uh with with this i feel like what you were saying it didn't it wasn't that deep hmm. or authentic i got one good term out of it though one nice piece of jargon i'm going to start using which is good copy <laughs> yeah you've been using that instead a lot. of saying heard or true i'm going to start saying good copy i had trouble with this category i have to say i think i gave it a one you did. I gave it a two. And I, I'm going to lay into it because I'm not the only one. Uh, when you look at some of the reviews on Amazon or Goodreads, a lot of people notice that this is a dark world that he lives in, the author and the characters. The cynicism is absolute, and you can see this in the TV series too. The There is no institution left that these people trust. Yeah. And when you, when you lack trust in every every single institution like why are you even quote serving your country anymore mm. so what's left though is made quite clear they're they're fighting to protect family and to protect their brothers their brothers in arms uh, but again it's it's problematic because you know if you read the first book or saw the tv series he's not successful at protecting his family his wife and daughter are killed in the very first novel yeah also the whole brotherhood thing he's kind of written himself out of that too because there are always these traitors and betrayers in the Brotherhood. So all that's left for motivation is protecting family and protecting your brothers, and not, neither of those really work. He's painted himself into a corner. There's a really dark kind of apocalypticism of this world, um, and it comes out, for example, if you look at the title. The title is Only the Dead, which I read the entire book and didn't know why, why that was the title. That's because you didn't have the audiobook. Yeah, right, because the audio, it turns out, reads the little epigraphs at the very beginning. Yeah. The very front page has this quote, Only the dead have seen the end of war by George Santayana. Now, I looked it up. Uh, Santayana wrote a piece called Soliloquy Number 25, Tipperary. He wrote this in 1918, right at the armistice that ended World War One, And mm. he was... He sets it up. He was outside a coffee house in Oxford, mm. and he heard officers singing the old tune Tipperary. And then he writes this piece or poem almost. And I'm just going to read a little bit because it really sets the tone of the world that we inhabit in, the, in, the, in this series. They were reprieved. They would never have to go back to the front. They see a green vista before them, a jolly, busy, sporting, loving life in the old familiar places. They have learned nothing. Mm. The young barbarians want to be again at play, taking their chances in the lottery of love and of business and of politics. They're going to shut out everything except their topmost instincts and easy habits and trust to luck. Good, honest, unguided creatures. They are hardly out of the fog of war when they are lost in the fog of peace. Mm. The poor fellows think they are safe. They think that the war, perhaps the last of all wars, is over. Only the dead 
have seen the end of war. Only the dead are safe. That's powerful. That's so powerful, but it's also really bleak. Yeah. And that's the world that Jack Carr and James Reese live in. This just fighting and fighting and fighting and never ends. And there's nobody left to even really motivate it. They use this phrase throughout the book, oh, I'm protecting my family. And it's just a mantra. It's empty because they're usually like way on the other side of the world, finding some battle that has nothing to do with their family. So that that's kind of hard to take. There's also a pretty strong uh, theme here that I would call an Ayn Rand complex. Uh, the author clearly wants to promote a certain ideology through fiction. And I don't have any trouble with that if it's done well. I just don't think it's done well here. Mm -hmm. the, there's a lot of sort of right-wing talking points scattered through the book in a way that's just not natural and doesn't further the story. Um, they come out as little random swipes and litanies of, of talking points. And often those come out in the mouths of the enemy. It's very strange, isn't it? It threw me for quite a while. So a couple of examples, the Russian, in one of those chapters that's from the Russian point of view, I'll read this quote. Internal division, the Americans had proven so adept at creating among themselves, race riots, rampant inflation, a dependence on foreign energy sources, what amounted to an open border, even distrust in their own election results. So that's from the point of view of Dashkov, one of the Russian bad guys. And first of all, it's not believable to me that the Russians are going to worry about our supposedly open borders. Right. <laughs> Look um, they care. There's, <laughs> but it has very little to do with the story. And then it just kind of is there. And then he's got an entire chapter about a congressman named Douglas Linden, who's clearly identified as Democrat without using the, the word. And he's portrayed as hopelessly corrupt. And then there's a quote, as Linden knew... Everyone was in on the hustle. He was more than happy to take multiple votes from the same person. Hell, he'd take votes from the deceased. <laughs> so you're right. He puts the, the right-wing uh, ideology in the minds and voices of people you wouldn't expect. So you don't have James Reese spouting this. You have right. Democratic Congress people and Russian generals. Yeah. And I that really threw me. Why would he do that? And it's almost like he's doing it for plausible denial. It would be too obvious if you put it in his main character's voice that, that, that he's using the book as a mouthpiece for ideology. Right. So that was not great. And again, I don't want to say that you can't have ideology in your books, but, but do it well. Include it in a way that's natural and that furthers the story or the characters. What did, what did you think about that? Yeah, I totally agree with you. The way that, that we would sort of delve into the side of the Russian characters, you can't really get to know them. You can't, you know, they're the bad guys. And then they're saying all these things. It doesn't seem authentic. It's just, it's just strange. I don't know. What did you think about the machismo and the, I call it drive-by sexism? There's, there's actually not that much of it. There was one quote, she had chosen to age gracefully without cosmetic enhancements. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> If you use cosmetic enhancements, you're by definition not aging gracefully. There's another one where somebody says, only black coffee served here. Remember, I was a Marine. It's a department of the Navy, the men's department. <laughs> well, that's that's actually probably realistic. They probably do talk like that. They probably do. I mean, I drink black coffee, so what does that make me a naval <laughs> officer? <laughs> And then there was one, I really dislike the use of torture for interrogation. Yeah. Now, it was included in the first, probably in the book, but definitely, which we haven't read yet. The first book we haven't read, but we did watch the show, and there was some intense torture by, you know, as an interrogation technique. That's really 
typical of Hollywood. Yeah. So I give him like a tiny little pass there. But in the novel, it was it was all it was gory. I don't. Let me be clear. It's not because it's gory that I don't like it. If you go back to, for example, when um, George W. Bush was setting up the torture regime that he's now infamous for, you know, in the Middle East, there were plenty of people, career, you know, intelligence people coming forward and saying, this is not effective. This Mm -hmm. is bad. This is how you get bad intelligence. Bad information. Bad information and how you turn those people against our POWs that they're holding on to right now. Okay, so there's plenty of information out there available to anybody that in the torture as a, as a means of interrogation is counterproductive as well as morally wrong. So he includes it. And I, I, I'm just going to mention it because I don't, I don't like it and I don't think it's necessary. And we've read books and we've seen shows where they don't do it. You just have to think a little more. So he's got some pretty intense torture scenes here where Reese is like, I'm, I'm just going to break you so I can get intel. So I ended up giving... World building, a one. I gave it a two. The next category is new best friends, the the characters in the book. Yeah, so this was not a strong category for me either. It seemed like it was more written like a movie script. You know, he's probably thinking in that direction. But the other thing was that there just wasn't a lot of authenticity with the characters. Mm. So, for instance, in Chapter 51, Reese hasn't seen his almost fiance Katie, since several dangerous and scary things have happened. And he sees her unexpectedly. And when she rushes to him, all he says is, I'm okay, Katie. Not, <laughs> you poor dear, you must have been so worried. Or how are you doing? Are you okay? Just, I'm okay, Katie. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I'm it's sorry. It's really bad. It's His, the song of the narcissist. It, <laughs> it's all about me. It's not just that. It, the, the relationship is terrible. He Okay, so he's in solitary for three months. He gets out. He doesn't go to sea. He doesn't contact her. When they do see each other, she never mentions it. Right. They have sex five times in 24 hours. I counted. (laughs) I guess that shows how intense they are that you they can have sex that many times. She never complains about why didn't you call me when you got out of prison? (laughs) And she talks to him about the new gun that she bought. (laughs) That is a adolescent fantasy of how a girlfriend works. The, his characterizations and relationships are weak. You know, in a novel, you want to get to know the characters. You want to understand, or at least one of them. You want to really connect and really understand their struggle. And I didn't feel connected to any of these characters. Well, he doesn't give us much to go with. Like, the characterization of Reese is surprisingly weak. It's pretty much limited to him repeating at random moments how he wants to retire and open a bookstore slash whiskey bar slash archery shop. Okay, that's a tiny little bit of characterization, but it's not very much. And after a while, like you said, it's just not authentic. He's just throwing this in randomly. Mm. Uh, the other thing I noticed is the Reese, he seems to exist in this very weird bureaucratic vacuum. Again, I, I thought about James Bond a lot while watching this, but what we get with Bond is these very interesting ongoing relationships between those who are essentially supervising or working with him Yeah. in MI, is it MI6 or 5, whatever. MI6. Yeah, so we don't get that here. It's not clear who supervises him, who his boss is. He seems to make all his own decisions just kind of on the spot. He leaves a trail of bodies behind him in very public places like that sauna in Manhattan. And and somebody, we don't know who, just sort of magically cleans them up for him. No consequences. <laughs> and he, at the end, he joins a team of Israeli assassins and apparently just from the force of his 
own persuasive powers, he's able to talk himself into this. So the, the bureaucratic setup that we have learned to really enjoy when it's done well is not there. You know, so going back to your Bosch example, Michael Connolly is really good with that stuff. Yes. He makes the inner workings of the police department very interesting. Yes. And we just don't have that here. And that weakens the characters quite a bit. So I ended up giving this category a one. I gave it a 1.5. So let's go to the last one. This is the big one. All the feels. You know, did this book have an emotional impact on you? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, the, there was a fairly decent drive towards the end. There was The pacing was good, um, could see where you were going, and the drive to get there. And that was rather gripping. That part was engaging, and so I felt excitement. Mm-hmm. I felt um, there was a, a little bit on edge. There were some really dramatic scenes underwater that were very enjoyable. And I... I did enjoy the end of the book and I I did feel excitement and then but when it was over I was mostly just relieved. <laughs> That's one emotional reaction. <laughs> I was disappointed in this too. I gave it a 1. It looks like you gave it a 1.5 for all 1. the 5. feels. Yeah. I, but I agree with you. The 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 action sequences are good and the setup is good, but some of the payoffs I have to say are lacking. The the prison sequence really disappointed me. I like a good escape story. Yes, so do. when I hear this book starts with him in solitary confinement, I'm excited. But do you remember how he got out? And I don't think this is a spoiler because it's right near the beginning. Yeah, I remember. How does he get out? They just let him out. They let him out. <laughs> okay. When we read <laughs> let down. When we read I Will Find You by Harlan Coben, which also starts with the protagonist in prison, it was a weak escape, but at least it was an escape. <laughs> it was dramatic. Some of the payoffs are missing. Some of the story ideas are just sort of undeveloped. Remember the thing about Alice? There's apparently a quantum computer that has gone sentient. She's mentioned two or three times in the book, never goes anywhere. A little bit the beginning, a little bit the end. The the overall effect is the emotion that we could have from the the pretty exciting climax uh, about stopping this nuclear bomb from going off is muted. Yeah, maybe the world blows up at the end of this. You got to read it to find out. That would be a twist. The book feels incomplete and rushed to me. And uh, you know, remember he gets out of solitary three months in the cold, naked, in the dark. In the dark. And remember, the, like the main impact that had on him, I need to put on some more muscle mass. He says that like three times. <laughs> like the writer needs to take the time to really think about what that would be like coming out of that torture. Yeah. And develop it. And I want to say something that might be a little presumptive, but I'm. I'm trying not to pile on this writer because I think he's really promising and I, I appreciate his achievement in coming up with this series that's quite successful right out of the military. I think he needs a couple of years off. You know, this is his sixth novel in six years and it feels like a beginner's novel. Mm. And I think this is an example where success is hamstringing him, not as an author. He's very successful as an author. Credit to him for that. But as a writer... He can't keep pumping out 500-page novels, one a year, and have time to improve and fix the things that we're talking about. Mm. I don't know the, the answer to that because there's a lot of motivation to keep coming out with one a year, not just for him, but for the publisher. For sure. But that's how it feels to me is he needs more time to develop as a writer, and he's got a lot of promise. But I ended up giving this a 1, and you gave it a 1.5. So the overall score... When you add it all up, is 16 divided by 10 for 10 scores, 1.6. That's our, that's our rating on a five-star scale. It puts it seventh of the books we've reviewed this year, uh, below Stormwatch 
and just a little bit ahead of Simply Lies, but still well ahead of our least favorite book, Encore in Death. But And by comparison, this book is scoring a 4.7 on Amazon, 4.38 on Storygraph, and 4.63 on Goodreads. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next episode when we review Identity by Nora Roberts. I think in Identity, they have sex four times in 24 hours. <laughs> so she's got a little work to do. Until then... <laughs> Keep dreaming, keep flying, keep laughing, keep crying, and don't stop until you've read them all. <laughs>